Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us here on the Fearless Paranoia podcast, where we seek to demystify the complex world of cybersecurity. Rejoining you after a brief summer hiatus, we are happy to be back. I'm Brian, the cybersecurity attorney. I'm Ryan, and I build cybersecurity systems. And today we are actually going to talk about something that I've been really excited to go over and discuss with Ryan since we first came up with the idea to do this podcast. It's the concept of quantum computing. Now, if you have paid any attention at all uh, over the past probably 10 years to the future of computing, if you've listened to anybody, paid any attention to some of the security discussions that have been going on in a geopolitical context, things like that, you've heard about this notion of quantum computing. Now, the way that it's phrased and the way that it's discussed by a lot of the people who are talking about it is, I mean, forgive the pun, but it is a quantum leap forward in computing. You walk away from any of these discussions with nothing short of this idea that it is going to completely revolutionize how computers work because things that used to take time now will not. Things will be done incredibly fast and in in a almost dystopian Wizard of Oz style way, it's talked about in a pay no attention to this man behind the curtain kind of way. It's discussed as this amazing technology that will come and it will solve all these problems as soon as it gets here and be wary and be aware and it's coming. It is going to be here, everything like that. But what they don't talk about really all that often from what I've seen is how stuff really works, what it really means. What is a quantum computer? What does it mean when you're talking about quantum computing? Turns out there's a pretty good reason why most people don't talk about what it is and how it works and everything like that. Uh, Actually, the best explanation that I've found to date was an article I read titled, Why is Quantum Computing So Hard to Explain? The answer is, is because it's complex as hell. It is a remarkably difficult to explain process because it is a remarkably big, complex system. And among everything else, it's based on quantum theory. It's based on something that is provable and proven only in a lab setting. And the reason why it's been given somewhat magical or mystical description or nature is because as of right now, that's all it is. So Ryan, before we actually start talking about what quantum computing is, I just kind of walk through what my general experience was in hearing about quantum computing. What are the kind of things that you hear about when you hear quantum computing? Well, quantum computing at its core is just kind of our next iteration, our next step into basic computing technology. One of the things that's kind of been at the core of basic computing technology for as long as most of us have experienced it in our lifetimes is that information is passed back and forth in bits. It's zeros and ones. It's all binary that's just passing over the cord or over the line. And uh, that's how we developed the entire age of modern computing is basically based off of stacks and stacks of zeros and ones, which has worked out really well. I mean, I was gonna say, I guess one way to describe that instead of stacks would actually almost would it be more appropriate to say lines or cues of zeros and ones. Yeah, that's probably actually a much better definition of that. But I guess the main piece here is that we've been stuck in this limitation of building with just those two blocks. And that's we've built amazing systems. We built the entire modern internet, all of the interconnected systems that we have based off of that technology. But the technology does have that core limitation of 
we have to continue to increase the size of that line or increase the size of that data set based off of the zeros and ones. And quantum computing just kind of breaks through that barrier and gives us the next possibility where it starts to jump into using effectively space that was outside of what was usable to us before. So it's it really is kind of uh, opens up a lot of new opportunities and possibilities. It comes with immense challenges, as we'll get into discussing. But if we can find ways to overcome those challenges, that it certainly opens up plenty of new worlds for us to explore. All right. So we're talking about something that is this, essentially it's rocket science mixed with computer science. This stuff is really hard and it's really hard to explain simply. I don't know. Let's give it a shot. Let's see if we can do it. I have faith in our ability to explain things. I never have faith in our ability necessarily to explain them simply, but beginning. So you discussed the concept of bits, the ones and zeros, and not only the length of the line, but obviously the speed at which your computer gets through that line. That's what we're talking about in a computer. Quantum computing uses what are called qubits as opposed to bits. Walk me through the difference. So from the surface, they look very similar, right? You're still working with the same initial data set, which is zero and one. The old system of bits just means that you've got a couple different positions for zero and one. It means you can either have zero off, one on, you can have zero on, one off, or you can have both off or both on. Uh, those are effectively your states of being in the old state of bits. With qubits, just due to the ability to jump into to superposition, you have the ability to actually have multiple states amongst those different states at the same time that can exist. And so it allows you to have multiple instances of these zeros and ones being active at the same time. And quantum computing is able to separate and kind of delineate between those and allow us to, again, this is where it gets really, really complex, but allows us to kind of you know, super... So one interesting thing, and I am a visual person, so I tend to think of things in visual metaphors. As we were talking about the line, you know, the idea of bits being zeros and ones in a line, and it, the length of the line, as well as the speed with which you can get through the line, are the primary limitations that apply to modern computing. If you were to think about the idea of being able to have multiple lines. If the same problem is one line of code and it can have whatever factor of to the nth power possible solutions because at each interval down the line, it could have a different result and that impacts the subsequent results and subsequent results. So you get any number of things based on your inputs, any number of outputs, but you have to go through the line in order for that to happen. In the context of quantum computing, I suppose it's definitely not a perfect metaphor, but if you essentially had a hundred lines, instead of one line, you have a hundred lines. And each of those hundred lines represents all the different possible inputs that there could be. And they're all running simultaneously. If you're able to actually calculate every possible version of that one calculation for every variable input at the same time. And so instead of doing one line of code, you've got 100 running all at the same time, assuming the idea that they are all read at the same rate. Because all of your qubits are occupying both one and zero at the same time, in theory, again, again this is in theory, you only need the amount of time to run that equation once and you'll actually have an answer for every single possible input you could have done. Like I said, it's an imperfect metaphor, but from a visual perspective, it's like taking the values you can get from a 2D graph to a 3D graph, basically. It's you're adding in an entirely separate way and ability of measuring without actually adding to the size of the system. Yeah, and it touches on the complexity involved to try to manage and deal with those types of calculations too, because in the past, we've just had basic memory, basic processing capabilities, and they understand how to deal with 
of everything. Everything comes across a period of that line and you can hold so much of that line in memory and you keep running into those space limitations based on the way the data is organized and the way that the processing power works. And here, as you said, it opens you up to a, a whole new level, a whole new scope of processing that you can do just so long as you can maintain the system that's required to be able to perform all that those calculations at the same time, which is where the challenge exists right now. The theory is in place for the concept and the system to work. Now we have to overcome the physical challenges and you know, some of the other challenges that come with it that are just not purely physical, I guess. But this is, yeah, we're at the stage now of we've done proof of concept and now we have to finish, you know, making the technology viable and stable so that the system can actually come to life and start being really used feasibly and in any sort of mass. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilient Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. So there are two essential terms then when we're talking about quantum computing qubits. One is you already mentioned was superposition and the other is entanglement. Now, as you said, superposition is this idea that a qubit can be, to borrow the title of a movie, uh, everything everywhere all at once. It can occupy all possible configurations available. Uh, And in this context, what we're saying is that it can be zero or one or nothing or all, all at the same time. So in a calculation, you're able to calculate for all of those possible options at the same time instead of having to run each one of those calculations separately. Now, this relates to entanglement. How would you describe entanglement of qubits? Well, to me, entanglement is kind of the next step, right? So you talked earlier about like you're taking one line of 100 equations and breaking that down to 100 lines of one equation so that if we could figure out how to process them simultaneously, that we could do all of them right in one lump at the same time. But there's still inherent limitations there. You've got 100 individual threads, 100 individual lines that are all working independently on different equations, different whatever, different functions effectively. And entanglement is really the ability for a lot of those lines to kind of cross over and work with one another to start kind of creating, you know, mutual wave functions as part of the path of putting those equations together. So instead of lines one through 100 operating on 100 separate functions, you've got maybe lines one through 50 are starting to go through a period of entanglement to start working together to simultaneously calculate different portions of one major function to work towards getting to the end. It would be similar to like the way that uh, you used to download music back in the day from a single source and then all of a sudden torrenting came out where now we're downloading from multiple different sources to try to accomplish one single goal, but you're pulling from all these different threads so that you're completing it in piecemeal, but all at different points in time from different sources is based on their reliability and their availability so that if you hit a stopping point nothing stopped in particular you kept building on all the rest of it until the you know the source came available that you needed but entanglement here would allow those lines to kind of cross and kind of blend together to offer mutual computing power towards a similar function but there is a problem with this whole process i mean there's uh, among the the many challenges the biggest from what i understand is decoherence which i guess could best be described as static or noise in the system. Am I getting that right? Well, so one of the big things here is, again, so let's say you're working on 100 separate lines of things. So when you're working on one line like in old computing, all you really have to do is make sure that you maintain the integrity of that line in that one data set. 
And it's more challenging than it sounds. It's a really gross oversimplification, but that's really what it comes down to at the end. Well, so let's imagine now you're a juggler. You're juggling one ball. It's pretty easy, right? You get in a rhythm. You're just tossing one ball in the air, catching it. Everything's fine. But now somebody comes by and tosses 99 more balls into the air right in front of you. And now you're trying to juggle 99 balls at the same time. So coherence of your juggling pattern is really important for you to maintain the ability to juggle all 100 of those balls. And you have to keep some sort of coherent pattern together in order to keep those in line. At some point in time, you have to deal with some of those other aspects that come in with quantum computing, things like what you mentioned with decoherence. What happens when that pattern starts to break down? All of a sudden, those balls either start to collide in the air or some start to fall off the side. They start to stray from their paths. Well, one of the biggest challenges of quantum computing is keeping all of this immense raw computing power organized and in line and stable enough to finish its job. And decoherence is when the quantum computing process starts to break down and when you start to see either interactions that are not being controlled in the way they were intended or just stop interacting the way that they're supposed to, uh, you start to get breakdown in the actual function. And of course, for something as complex as quantum computing, where you're relying upon accuracy and integrity of this many different independent lines, it's really important that those all stay functioning at you know top tier efficiency and so that's where decoherence is really a major challenge that needs to be reined in and figured out you're listening to the fearless paranoia podcast we're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable so if there are topics or issues that you'd like ryan and i to break down in an episode send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on facebook or linkedin for more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com, where you'll find a full transcript, as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts, as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. Those are some of the theoretical reasons why this is such a difficult thing to come up with. There are also technical hurdles that really must be overcome before any kind of quantum computer is reasonable. I mean, one of the big things is actually getting a stable number of qubits in one quantum system being an issue. And from what I understand, part of the problem with that is, is because these systems, in order for superposition and entanglement to occur, your computer needs to be cooled to a temperature of near absolute zero. That ain't an easy thing to maintain. No, it absolutely is not. Much just like even with just modern computing as we know it nowadays, maintaining temperature around a computer is important for its function. Anyone that has been in the technical world with IT for a while has known that if you overheat a computer, they stop functioning pretty quick. Likewise, if you get a machine that you've left out in your car in Minnesota over the winter for a couple of days and you bring it back inside and you fire up that laptop, you see that it runs noticeably slower for a while until it starts to gain its way back towards room temperature. And that's just by design. Same with quantum computing. Temperature causes major challenges and having a state temperature that you can operate at is probably the most critical piece. I believe near the absolute zero just gives them the least amount of kind of environmental impacts that you occur. I mean, you're dealing with things now. You're, you're getting past, again, just basic zeros and ones. We're getting into a whole nother level of managing data. So just having stability across those systems just reduces the amount of errors that can potentially occur. Well, yeah, you need to take away the potential variables that might cause that static, might cause that interference. I remember reading fairly recently about the amount of water that Google is using presently in order to power its BART AI. And, you know, OpenAI is getting a ton of flack for how much water is being used. And 
simply because of how much they have to spend to keep their systems cool. These are systems that can be cooled using water. You are not getting to absolute zero or anywhere close to it using any reusable resource readily available on the planet. So unless you're actually, you know, housing your quantum computer on the exterior of a spaceship, you're talking about a pretty expensive and intense process to keep that temperature. And maybe that's where quantum computing will end up someday, right? Maybe quantum computing as a service is going to be one of the first actual pieces of infrastructure that we build beyond the clouds uh, and we put up in space and we start using this, you know, satellite technology to start bridging the gap back and forth. And we start finding new ways to do things where we're not reliant upon the earth itself for those pieces that it doesn't provide easily to us. I'm sorry, Dave. I can't do that. Yeah. Well, they've, you know, they're starting to put together things like the deep space network and things. So this could be a, you know, that could be the next proving ground for a technology like quantum computing is maybe it just does need to go into space. Maybe they need to turn this to the dark side of a satellite so that it never faces the sun and it gets to take the advantage of the cold darkness of space and all that it offers. So who knows? It'll be interesting to see how these big investors and these big, the ones that are undertaking building the era of quantum computing. And it'll be interesting to see how they overcome those challenges and where the actual kind of path takes us as, uh, as we continue to journey down it. That's a great segue into talking about what you know this future really is because I've done a lot of reading on the technical side of it, but I've heard plenty of the discussions about what we can expect to get, the great things that will come or the horrible things depending on how you look at it. And I want to focus very specifically on one of the potential negative impacts that this could have in just a second. But aside from just speed, there are a lot of really smart people who are having a hard time coming up with good descriptions of what the benefits of quantum computing are going to be because one of the most important things to bear in mind about our modern computing system is that it was by and large created to solve specific problems. And then as its abilities grew, as it scaled up in ability, it did so at a rate that allowed us to couple its new abilities with practical uses and an economy that was built on benefiting those who were able to best harness these new powers. You had tangible economic benefits all along the way attaching to those people who were best able to make use of the new technology. However, the things that a quantum computer can do because it is so theoretical and because it is so expensive to operate don't have really many practical uses aligned with them yet. What do you see as the benefits? What things are you looking forward to from this type of technology? To me, I think that the big things I'd like to see is increases in the fields that we've been limited by core technologies. So getting into things like scientific research, medical research, I think those are immediate areas where we could see a lot of benefit. Starting to calculate some of the information that we're bringing back from space nowadays. We're just about to have a sample from the asteroid Bennu is going to appear back here. It's going to arrive back on Earth so we can do some research on that. But even pulling in some of the new stuff coming in from like the James Webb Space Telescope, things like that, just being able to use that to kind of parse through all of that data a lot faster. There's a lot of data and stuff that comes in that's part of a space fascination that is sorted through volunteers right now. NASA just kind of grabs volunteers off the internet and they parse through a lot of this stuff because there's just not enough computing power available to do it reliably. So to me, those are some really great areas I'd love to see this stuff move into. I'd like to see it move 
slower into my space of cybersecurity. I don't think I'm going to get my way, but I hope that it will. I think one of the biggest concerns people have is its impact on things like encryption and data privacy and security. I'm not as concerned because I think that there's going to be a lot of immense benefits that'll come in that space as well. And I think that what it'll be is less of a breakdown of the old systems because of the availability of the new. And I think it'll be more of a time to pivot from older technologies to new technologies. So to me, I'm just seeing this as being like a 1.0 to 2.0 transition computing. But I'm not putting a lot of eggs in the basket yet because I don't see it coming inherently fast as we have seen right now. And I think that with its adoption being as slow as it is, development as slow as it is, and the amount of challenges that they're having to overcome, I think even before we get to a point of seeing it offered as a service to anybody beyond institutions that can afford to pay for it, I think it's going to be quite a while before we start to see this kind of hit the public scene Mm -hmm. anywhere. One of the things you brought up is I want to talk about is this idea of the end of encryption. Now, obviously, cryptographers and experts in cryptographic math and things like that have been worried about this for a while because of this idea that encryption, modern encryption is based on this notion that you create an algorithm so complex that unless you have the key on one end, you're not likely to be able to solve it because you have that line, that long line of ones and zeros and you have to get through that line and it's a lengthy line and it's a difficult one to make sure you have all the right variables. And so basic computing power right now makes it so that it takes too long to get through them. If you don't have the right variables to unlock it from the start, hopefully renders it functionally impossible. Now the idea obviously with uh, superposition and entanglement where you have every single possible input being represented all at the same time would be in theory, again, (laughs) it's all theory here, in theory would be some sort of skeleton key. Now I don't believe that the quantum computing systems that destroy encryption will progress fast enough to outpace the established financial interest and economic benefit that comes from developing technologies that protect information. So we're not suddenly going to lose the ability to encrypt financial transactions, for example, before quantum computing is in a position to render everyday financial transactions insecure we will come up with a better way to secure them. That's my opinion. But there's a lot of information that is protected by nearly unbreakable encryption right now that has been taken, whether it's been taken by hackers, whether it's been taken and stored by the US government. The NSA has spent decades hoovering up any data they can and storing it. They have all of that data stored, encrypted data that they could go back and using some of these tools could potentially simply decrypt. That's my concern. Are there security and intelligence benefits to being able to go back and decrypt all that information? Sure. There are actually probably fantastic historical benefits to it as well. Uh, Anthropological benefits, being able to understand things that have been said secretly between important people that have a bearing on how the world functions and operates. I mean, one other big thing that I wanted to ask you about, Ryan, on this is among the drawbacks that I've read about, and the reason this struck me was because of our discussion last spring about AI, that among the major drawbacks of quantum computing are error correction and the ability to actually observe the output. At what point does a computer process something so fast that no one is able to actually sit there and determine whether or not it's doing it right. I mean, it happens already right now. I don't think that that's going to be an issue that that's going to go away anytime soon. It's certainly something that they need to consider before we just open the floodgates of allowing mass computations to occur and just trusting them. We've moved into a severe state of zero trust over the last you know couple decades of modern computing. And part of that is just due to the nature of security threats and securing our systems and providing kind of procured availability to different services. But like this opens up a Im- immensely new can of worms. 
we will not be able to just blindly trust the data that comes. So it's it's going to be really important and hugely critical to the success of these systems to provide error-free data reliably. So being able to do things like quantum error correction and being able to do validation of that needs to be built into the system. If it's not built into the system, it would need to be built into some sort of associated system to be able to do this. But again, you've got a system doing the calculations now, potentially a system or a process being the watcher of the calculations. Do you have to have a watcher of the watcher? At what point does it kind of spin down before you've reduced enough errors to say that the outputs are supremely valid? And at what point are we okay then with understanding that we don't have enough human capacity to keep watching these valid that we've determined valid outputs. So we just start accepting them. It's going to be a tough thing to swallow for a lot of people, uh, especially as they you know, get into academics, anyone that's been in technology for a while uh, and has seen the negative impact of errors that aren't caught in time. And I can understand the compounding nature would be like of those type of errors happening at scale, especially if they started to get outside of our control. I mean, it could it could take a whole system like that and all of the benefits that come from it, and it could collapse that like a house of cards really quickly. And of course, just by nature of it and human nature tied into it, if one of those systems starts to fail, it's going to bring into question almost all the other systems that are doing equivalently yep. important tasks. And so it really is a house of cards until they get to the point of really producing a, a solid foundation to get past some of those initial challenges like decoherence and like error correction and some of the other major, major challenges that occur in that function stream right now. Well, I'll tell you, if the way the companies that are currently the top generative AI companies are approaching their, what I'll call, moral obligation to ensure accuracy uh, is any indication of what we can expect to see from quantum computing. I do not have a lot of faith in us actually answering those questions correctly. Effectively is a different thing. I mean... Well, and how hard would but, it be for one bad actor, again, to get in the middle of one of these systems, right? So you take one of these companies mm -hmm. now who decides, hey, we're going to do something slightly malicious outside of the norm. Well, there's going to be so few controllers of these systems, at least at the start, until we start to see broader adoptions, just because of the cost, the complexity, etc., that any one of these systems or computers or companies that just goes rogue a little bit, once people do start to accept the outputs of this technology, they might be the only ones able to properly validate the outputs of the technology, which means now you've put judge and jury both right inside the same hands of the same person as far as producing that data, validating that data, and being the sole guarantor of reliability behind the data. It's a tough thing for us as humans in a, a zero trust type stance to accept, to just blindly say, hey, yes, we will trust Google or OpenAI or whoever because they're giving us the data that we, we want. And it has to be right, right? I mean, who would ever just willingly give us bad data? Yeah, unless, of course, we you know take the lesson of history and learn that everyone will give us bad data. Well, I mean, human nature will twist things to their benefit when they get the opportunity mm -hmm. as often as they won't. It just is what it is. I mean, that's one of the other pieces that you have to contend with is that behind all of these systems, as much as you want to remove the human component aspect of it, we're still the ones building the systems, which means these things are going to do what we program them to do, what we tell them to do. And if we tell them to do things that are outside of what the expected norm is, then they're going to do exactly what we tell them. And that's a, a scary thing like that open source was supposed to protect us from in the past. And then we saw many decades later how 
great that system worked just because we opened it up and we gave full visibility to everybody didn't mean that everybody was pouring through it checking it for problems and yeah. uh, that became very inherent a decade too late yeah complacency arises you know in all areas but you know i guess it's all hail our new quantum powered overlords whenever that happens all right y'all well that is all the time we have today on fearless paranoia in the next few weeks we plan on talking a little bit more about ai i want to get into uh the power of generative ai with ransomware i want ryan to talk to us a little bit about how uniquely horrible that that is, I also want to talk a little bit further about some of the big hacks that have happened recently and kind of discuss how and why those are things that we need to be concerned about and why, you know, just maybe we shouldn't be fully willing to trust uh, computerized and internet connected slot machines. We can uh, we can talk about that issue next time. I want to thank you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share this out to anyone who you believe might benefit from a little bit more cybersecurity knowledge. Sharing these episodes is how our podcast gets around. You can follow us on Facebook. Facebook. You can follow us on LinkedIn. You can go to our website and subscribe to new episodes. You can hear our podcast on any of your favorite podcasting platforms or applications. Ryan, did I miss anything? No, I think you got it. We love doing this. We love breaking this stuff down for you guys. And uh, our success is completely reliant upon you guys getting out there and helping us spread the word. So uh, we'll keep dropping the words uh, here for you guys to spread and go out there and let others know that uh, this is the source of knowledge. The source of knowledge may have had a better pe- podcasting title than Fearless Paranoia. Yeah, well, Probably already taken next, though, right? Maybe for next season, we'll take a look. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody. Uh, I am Brian. And I'm Ryan. And we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>